Well, the passage this morning is going to be from the book of Matthew as we continue through that gospel. However, our scripture reading is going to come from the parallel passage to that in Luke chapter 7. So I'd invite you to stand with me as you find Luke chapter 7 in your Bible. You're looking at Luke's account of Jesus healing the servant of the centurion. Reading verses 1 through 10 of Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go. And he goes, and another, come, and he comes. Enter my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Thanks. You can have a seat. Well, good morning once again. I am routinely blessed and thankful for this congregation. When I consider the church that God is building here at Legacy, I see the kindness of His providence on display. For such a young and small congregation, we have have had a surprisingly trial-filled year. And some of those trials that are being faced don't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. Even so, I think we have every reason to praise God for the mercy that He has shown us. There are and there have been and there will be trials, but God has also given us the means to endure those trials nonetheless. I'm convinced that God has used the deep and genuine relationships that He has developed in this congregation to help many of us not only face the trials that we have faced, but come out the other side stronger for them. Beloved, even as I praise God for how faithfully you have loved one another in this church over this past year, I urge you all the more to continue to do so. Do not grow weary in showing love one to another. Do not grow weary in serving one another. Pray for one another. Look in on one another. Encourage one another. Even when you are tired or busy or weary yourself, let the world around us know the love of Christ by how well we love one another. Be encouraged and give God the glory for what He has done and what He is yet doing in this church. 
Well, as Clay said this morning, we are going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew as we follow the narratives of, of what happened in his earthly ministry shortly after he finished the Sermon on the Mount. In successive narratives after he came down from the hill country, we see him approached by two very unlikely men. These men were nothing like each other. Yet for different reasons, neither one of them would have been expected to approach or to make a request of Jesus. The first man, as Clay taught us about last week, was an outcast. He was a leper. His physical condition has entered into our popular language as an expression of being shunned, avoided, or ostracized. His only companions would have been other lepers, other outcasts on the outskirts of society. He had to endure the shame if he came near to people of yelling unclean, of warning them to stay away from me because I am unclean. Yet he broke the protocol of the day to go near to Jesus, to seek, to be made well. Because Jesus healed people, and that healing was this man's only hope. We don't know how exactly how long after Jesus healed the leper, but the next event that Matthew records is Jesus entering back into Capernaum and then being approached by another very unlikely man who, according to the typical convention of the day, would have had little to nothing to do with Jesus. This time, the divide wasn't because of sickness, but was because of ethnic difference and worldly station. This man was a Gentile, not just a Gentile, he was a Roman, and not just a Roman, but a Roman military officer. He too broke convention by coming to Jesus. And we'll look at the, that Jesus' response in just a little bit. As we continue to press on through the Gospel of Matthew, I want each of you to keep your ears open for some of the familiar themes that we have already seen and discussed. We're going to see a continuation of the unfolding of the power and the authority of Jesus. We've seen glimpses of His authority. We've seen that He taught with an authority that the people had never seen in the religious leaders of the day. He had an authority to declare the true nature and heart behind God's law. We have seen His authority also as a healer, that He had the ability to undo sickness and illness and disease, to restore to health. This morning, we'll get a better understanding of the source and the true weight of the authority of Christ. Of course, as we continue through Matthew, we, Matthew, we will continue to build a better and more concrete picture of the authority of Jesus until he makes that statement in the Great Commission, when he lets us know the full extent of his authority. Spoiler alert. His authority is over everything in heaven and on earth. So keep an ear out for that theme as we go through Matthew to see the disclosing of the authority of God's Messiah, the, the king who has come with his kingdom. The other major theme in Matthew's gospel that we will see unfolded a bit more this morning 
is the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven. Thus far, we have only been given small glimpses of this theme running through Matthew. We have seen his genealogy go back to Abraham. Remember that Abraham was promised that through his seed, which is Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We have seen in Jesus' genealogy that there were Gentile women in his direct lineage. And then we saw that he was first recognized as king and worshipped by the Magi from the east, those pagan Gentiles who were kingmakers in their own right. In our passage this morning, we'll see that theme be given more structure, be a little bit more defined. Not only were the Gentiles going to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but they would do so as the native sons of the kingdom were thrown out into the darkness. We'll ask you to join me once again in prayer as we prepare ourselves to dive into this text and hear the words of the living God. Father, without your spirit working in us, This exercise will profit no one. So we ask that your spirit would move in power this morning among us and within us. That your words, your truth would penetrate deep into our hearts and our minds that it would remain with us, that it would shape us, conform us. Father, make us more like Christ. Give us a love for your word, a desire to be changed by your word, an eager expectation to see what you will accomplish by your spirit through your word. Keep the preacher out of the way. Forbid that I would distract from the gospel. Protect your people. Draw men to your Son. Be glorified. In Christ's holy name, amen. Well, I had Luke 1, or sorry, Luke 7, 1 through 10, read for us before the sermon this morning, because as Clay said, it is the sister text to our passage that we are going to focus on. And as I read Matthew's account, I want you to pay attention to any differences that you might hear, differences in content or differences in theme and emphasis. So I'll be reading from Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. That we read, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said of those who said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, no in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion To the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Were you able to catch any differences between these two recountings of this narrative, either in contents or in emphasis? Of course, in many ways, these two accounts are similar enough that one would naturally assume that they both are speaking of the same event. Yet in other ways, at least on the surface, there seems that there either must be two oddly similar events, or else one of these authors must have misremembered, must have made a mistake in recalling exactly what took place, or that somebody actually purposely changed the narrative to get their point across. Well, beloved, we don't want to shy away from recognizing where there might be controversy or difficulty in understanding the Scriptures. We need to be aware of those places where there appears to be a contradiction, where there appears to be something that doesn't quite seem right on the surface. Because these are the kind of things that atheists love to point out to try and, and shake and break down the confidence that a Christian has in the authority and the consistency of Scripture. Well, let's address the harder part first, and then we can consider the different emphasis that Matthew and Luke may have had as they were writing their gospel accounts. So who approached Jesus? Was it a group of elders? Or was it a centurion? Luke said it was the elders of the Jews, and Matthew said it was the centurion himself that approached Jesus. Does one of them have to be wrong? Is the only safe option to say, well, this must be two different events that are just very similar? Or is there a way to reconcile both of these events to one unified narrative wherein neither author gets anything wrong or is purposely or even accidentally misleading? Well, I think the correct answer is to both deny that these are describing two separate events and to deny that either Matthew remembered this event wrong or Luke interviewing a number of different people. Because remember, Matthew is an eyewitness of these events and Luke went and interviewed and he went and saw, took all the information available and compiled it into a cohesive narrative. So I think it's, it's, the answer is that they didn't remember wrong, Matthew or the witnesses that Luke interviewed. First off, while there are times that the gospel authors were selective in what they included into their gospels or the order in which they placed the events, there is too much here to indicate that this is the same encounter of Jesus with a centurion as he entered Capernaum. 
So what do I think accounts for Matthew naming the centurion as the one who came to Jesus and Luke recording that it was Jewish elders on his behalf? Well, in the first century Jewish mind, there was absolutely no problem with this kind of difference in speech or the way of way of accounting it. In the first century Jewish mind, they understood there to be a very strong connection between service and authority, or the ability for someone to act as an official representation of that person. We can understand it well enough for it to make sense to us when it's explained to us, but it isn't our natural assumption or response when we see something like this. But for the first century Jew, there would have been no contradiction in their mind to say that it is the same thing to say that a centurion approached Christ or to say that elders of the Jews at the request and under the authority of the centurion approached Jesus. What we are seeing in these two separate accounts is the principle of he who acts by another acts for himself. There's a fun Latin phrase, still something that is involved in legal proceedings. He who acts by another acts for himself. That principle relates to this passage, both in helping us understand why there isn't, in fact, a contradiction between the centurion approaching Christ and the elders approaching Christ in the centurion's name, as well as it helps us understand how Jesus, why Jesus marveled so much at the faith that was displayed by the centurion as he spoke of authority. So simply put, There is no real difference between the centurion sending someone in his name to act for him and for his interests and the centurion going himself to Jesus. Not in a legal sense, according to the principle of he who acts by another acts for himself and not in the eye of the first century Jew. The only problem that might exist here is with us and with our understanding. Of course, we will look how this relates to the centurion statement of faith a little later, and how this principle is at play there as well. As far as the different emphasis between Luke's account and Matthew's account, one commentator summed it up nicely that Matthew was primarily focused with the centurion's race and with his faith, while Luke focused on the good standing that the centurion had among the Jews and more so on his humility. With Matthew's overall theme of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the gospel story, into God's plan and and into God's kingdom, we can understand why he might have simplified this event the way that he did and thereby give greater emphasis to the statements that Jesus gave that Matthew included that Luke did not. This encounter with a centurion happened shortly after Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount as he came back into the city of Capernaum. The last time we heard of Capernaum was referenced when Jesus began his public earthly ministry after he was baptized by John and he came out of the wilderness and the temptation that he experienced there. Capernaum was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
It was at this time a city of some importance for regional trade, and it housed a Roman military, military garrison, likely under the command of the very centurion that in this narrative approached Jesus. Jesus based his ministry in this region at this time out of Capernaum. It served as a bit of a base of operations between him and his disciples as they traveled throughout this area. It was where it became a very familiar place to him and those who were closely following him. Well, as I mentioned before, a Roman centurion was not a likely man to be approaching Jesus. Much like the leper in the verses before, there were strong cultural pressures and reasons that would have kept their, a, a, a distance between them. Just the fact that the man was a Gentile was enough that there would be a great division between the Jesus, a Jew, and a Gentile. More so the fact that he was one of the hated Romans. Even if he was under good um, in relationships with the Jews because he had built them the synagogue, even if he was sympathetic to the Jews, he was still a Roman, and he was part of the Roman military that was keeping the Jews under foot. There was plenty reason for there to be distance. For there to be as little reason as possible for this man to approach Christ. Yet we see that he did. So this man, whether in person or via agents under his charge, as we said, it makes no difference. This man had a servant who was paralyzed and was suffering and was near to death. This man had heard of Jesus. He had heard of the healings and the miracles of Jesus. And he knew that Jesus, just like the, for the leper, was this man's only hope. It is a testament to the character of the centurion that even though he was a man of some standing, that he cared enough for somebody that was under his charge, somebody that was important to him, that he sought out this wandering, controversial Jewish teacher and healer. Well, when he approached Jesus, most of our English translations record Jesus responding immediately that he would go to his home to heal his servants. But some commentators have pointed out that because of the emphasis in Greek on the word I, it may have been posed more as a question. I, a Jew, should come and heal him? That kind of response would be consistent with how Jesus had treated other Gentiles who had come to him with a request in the Gospels. If you turn ahead a little bit to Matthew 15, we'll look at verse 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. 
Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Of course, if we didn't have the end of that story with with the Canaanite woman, we would think that Jesus' first and second response were very cold and cruel. In the broader context of Matthew, however, we can see the theme of Matthew's gospel on display. Jesus was sent, as John before him, to call Israel to repentance because judgment was close at hand now that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. It wasn't yet time for the Gentiles to come and enter in. Even so, even if their time had not yet come, it was close, and Matthew wanted his audience to see it and to understand it. So even if Jesus at first appeared standoffish about going to help the centurion's dying servant, he had compassion on him, And he was willing to go, just as he ultimately showed the Canaanite woman compassion and healed her daughter. In both cases, their faith in the ability of Jesus to do what they asked was a testament to the work of God among the nations and a rebuke of the nation of Israel. Jesus had compassion even on those who were outside of his immediate calling and his immediate ministry on earth. Compassion as in his nature. And and be it someone who is rich or poor, mighty or weak, scholar or simpleton, man or woman, young or old, when they cry out to him in faith, he hears He has compassion, and he shows mercy. So for the centurion, as for the Canaanite woman, it meant the healing of the one that they cared for. For others, it might mean something else. Yet everyone who places their faith in Christ will be heard, and they will not be ashamed. Both Matthew and Luke record the centurion as urging that Jesus would heal his servant and then telling Jesus that he was not worthy to have Christ come to his home. Well, a couple of things to note here. While John records Jesus as healing someone else from a distance, we have no reason to believe that this centurion was aware that Jesus had the ability or had in the past healed people without being physically in their presence. And while a Roman soldier who had been a friend to the Jews might know something of their cultural habits, know something of the defilement that might come upon a Jew should he enter into a Roman home or a Gentile's home, we have no indication that this is the reason the centurion urged Jesus not to come. The centurion responded to Jesus' willingness to come and heal his servant by saying, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
But Luke attested that the centurion's humility and his respect for Jesus was the reason that he sent others in his stead. It was the reason that he used agents under his authority and at his direction to go to Jesus for his servant. He did not presume that he was even worthy to approach Jesus. The fact that the centurion was known and respected by the Jewish elders in Capernaum would lead me to believe that he was comfortable being around the Jews, that it wasn't something that was uncommon for him to have some interaction with them. So it doesn't seem likely that his humility before Jesus was out of some concern that he might defile him or cause him some social stigma by being around him. No, I think something much more consistent with Matthew's theme of the inclusion of the Gospels is at play in the humility of the centurion. The centurion was a man of standing, a man of of strength, a man of some means. Yet he did not consider himself worthy of entering into the presence of this simple carpenter's son turned wandering preacher. This wasn't a false sense of humility. This wasn't a false sense of piety. There was no reason for that. This was something else, something that we have seen before. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. In this case, neither of these attributes were forced upon the centurion because of poverty or oppression or of weakness. A Roman centurion was typified by pride and strength. But as we talked about back when we were in Matthew 5, looking at the Beatitudes, they did not represent weakness, frailty, or depression. They represented somebody who understood their relationship to God, their position against the holiness of God and their need for salvation. Those characteristics represented a positive spiritual orientation, not a pitiable existence. So it is much in line and consistent in Matthew's gospel to show that the heart of the Beatitudes, this heart of the Beatitudes that was ignored and rejected by the nation of Israel, to whom the message was given, would be found in a Gentile. Not just any Gentile, but a Roman soldier. What a powerful picture of the arrogance and the folly of Israel, and at the same time, the power and the glory of the gospel to save. Well, Centurion followed up his claim of not being worthy of the presence of Jesus with this, and read in verse 9, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. This was a man who understood the nature of true authority. He understood the nature of authority in a way that most of us today do not. Our culture has a very broken understanding of authority. We tend to not understand where it comes from, 
how to wield it, or how to respond to it. Too many people in this country do not believe that they are or should be under anyone's authority. Not really. They live and they act as though they are a God unto themselves. Americans pride themselves on having no king. After all, we fought a bloody war to get rid of the king and to send him back across the pond. And while there may be some truth to that, it is missing two very important realities. Number one, Jesus is king. He is king in our homes. He is king in this church. He is king over this nation. He is king over all of creation. There is no sphere of any existence in this universe over which Jesus is not king. And no, he does not need our permission to become king. He is king. And secondly, in this land, law is king. As a nation, we do not place any man in ultimate authority, yet we do have a document that carries a kingly authority over all lesser authorities. Just as there are many people in any given monarch that are devoted to understanding and carrying out the will of the king, so too in this country there are many who are devoted either to upholding or subverting the all-powerful words of the Constitution. So in either case, should you find yourself in an absolute monarchy or in a democratic republic, all human authority is ultimately delegated authority. So all human authority, be it in a democratic republic such as we have, or at least we're set up to be, or an absolute monarchy, all human authority is delegated authority. Even though nations carry big carrots or big sticks, their ability to bless or to punish us is not the reason that we obey or the reason that we resist. Not as Christians. As Christians, we we obey those in positions of authority who are exercising true authority as given and directed by God or we resist because they are attempting to subvert God's law and God's order in society. So does the accordance of how well they are acting out in their delegated authority from God to which our obedience or our resistance lies. Our culture has a broken understanding of the nature of authority Because so many people who have been entrusted with that delegated authority act as though the authority comes from themselves. They therefore do not act according to the intentions and the limitations of the authority with which they have been entrusted. They do not act out of jealousy for the honor of the authority that had been entrusted to them. They act out of jealousy for their own personal honor and authority. 
You see this play out in the politician who rages against the lowly citizen who dares question his actions or his motives. You can see this play out when people in law enforcement get more upset about not being shown the adequate respect they feel they deserve than they do about making sure that justice is withheld. You see this play out in countless government-influenced institutions, such as our schools or hospitals. You see this all too often among religious authorities. And you see this all too often among parents who fly into a rage because their children dare disrespect them rather than experiencing righteous indignation because their children have disrespected the command of our Lord. Ultimately, all true authority does and can only stem from God. All real authority is delegated by God. Where those who are placed by God in positions of authority act in accordance with the directive and sphere in which they have been placed, we must submit and obey, else we defy God in defying those who God has given authority over us. When people in positions of authority, be they in government or in the church or in the home, act contrary to the directive and the sphere over which they have been placed, then they act as tyrants and not as agents of God. Resistance then is not only possible, it is often demanded. Those who are in legitimate places of authority and who are concerned instead of with the respect and honor of the authority that they have been entrusted with, but in their own honor and their own authority, not of God, but for themselves, when they act outside of the scope that they have been placed in, they are guilty of idolatry against God and often treason against the state. In the Roman world, all authority stemmed from the emperor, So yes, I know that in reality, even that authority was delegated from God and to the degree that the emperor actually was faithful to the authority he was given or faithless to it was the degree to which he ought to be obeyed or resisted. But in the Roman world and in the Roman mind, all authority stemmed from the emperor. All civil and military authority trickled down from the emperor. As such, obedience or disobedience to laws or orders were ultimately made for or against the emperor himself. When the centurion gave an order to his men, it was as if the emperor had commanded his men. And if he was disobeyed, it was as if the emperor himself had been disobeyed. So the Roman centurion with that framework of of delegated authority, of being able to make command and, and directly speak under the authority and the name of the emperor, he took that understanding and applied it to his belief that Jesus did have the authority to heal his dying servant. Because Jesus had the ability to do what only God could do, 
namely to heal the sick, to raise the dead to life. Therefore, he must be of God and from God. Since only God could heal and Jesus could heal, therefore Jesus carried the authority of God. Though he surely wouldn't have had the correct theological understanding to name it correctly, what he was describing was that the Son was on the earth doing the will of the Father and acting in the Father's name and carrying the Father's authority. So as the Son was believed in and accepted and obeyed, so the Father was believed in and accepted and obeyed. Just as when he was rejected, so also the Father was rejected. Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. Of course, we can consider the very different reception that Jesus found from his own people, from his own hometown, those who had been closest to him. If you turn ahead just after Matthew to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we'll see a very different response to the teaching and the works of Jesus. We read there, when he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What, it, where, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. The same word was used both for the faith of the centurion and the lack of faith among those close to Jesus in his hometown. Jesus marveled at their response. The way the centurion approached Jesus and understood the authority he possessed showed just how well he understood the ministry and the purpose of Jesus. Even though he was an outsider, even though he was a Gentile, a Roman, and a soldier. Yet the Jews of Jesus' hometown, though they had the heritage and traditions of the patriarchs, and though they had ample time to witness the perfection of Christ throughout his childhood and his upbringing, to be able to witness that this man who had been perfect, who had never done anything wrong to anybody, who has come back to them with powerful words and actions, who they knew his life testified to the wonder that God was doing through him. They knew there was nothing about his life that should give anyone any pause 
that he was from God. And yet they did not believe or understand. In fact, when they heard the same kind of teaching that caused the crowds we saw just a few verses back to marvel at the authority of Christ, these people had become numb and they took offense at him. In contrast, the centurion had no doubt that Jesus could heal his dying servants. He had no doubt that Jesus had the authority to simply command it to be done and it would be done. That Jesus had all authority over sickness and he had all authority over men. The Gentile soldier understood what the educated religious elites in the first century Israel could not. Rather than take offense, he believed and he trusted. He would feast at the table while the natural sons would be cast out into the dark. And Jesus said nowhere in Israel had he found such faith. Well, Jesus, after marveling at the faith of the centurion, said this in Matthew 8, 11, and 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll turn with me back to Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Well, it may have been a shock to the Jews that the Gentiles would be included at the table feasting with Abraham and the other patriarchs, yet it should have not have been. If you'll but look, you will see in various places through the Old Testament the anticipation of the inclusion of the Gentiles, the inclusion of the nations at the feast of the Lord and the kingdom of God. Some commentators, I think rightly, see this language as topology for the true Israel being made up of the elect of the Jews and the elect of the Gentiles being gathered from the four corners of the earth. The nations will believe and feast with Abraham as his true descendants by faith. 
even as his natural offspring would be cut off for the rejection of God's Messiah. There are many places I would like to take us to to help flush out just what Jesus was talking about in this this section. But we'll need to be content for the moment with just a couple, though I did give you more of those references in your worship guide that I encourage you to look through in family worship this week. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Know then that it is those those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See in Romans 9, 25 through 29, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. In that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Inclusion of the Gentiles was part of the promise that was made all the way back to Abraham. It was always part of what God was going to do. It wasn't because these Gentiles were more deserving than the nation of Israel, just as it wasn't something unique about Israel that caused God to show favor on them to begin with. No, it was because the Son of God deserved the praise, the glory, and the worship from all peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations. So Abraham's promised descendants were those who were of his faith, not those who were of his flesh. I don't know how clear that was to Abraham. It certainly wasn't clear to his physical descendants as they rejected God's Messiah when they chose rather than to rely on the faith of Abraham to rely on their claim to the flesh of Abraham, their physical tie rather than their spiritual tie. God was going, God had promised long before that he would make for himself a people who had not been his people. He would place his love on those who had not previously known his love and his favor. God didn't need Israel's obedience to secure for his son a people and a possession. Yet because he is faithful and merciful, even in the midst of the national rejection of God's Son, he preserved for himself a remnant among the nation of Israel. The faith of the centurion gave evidence to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven. The same Gentiles who would one day rest at the table with their king 
and the great patriarchs of Israel who had gone before. The nations from the east and the west would feast at the table of our Lord. Of course, this picture wasn't all positive. Jesus said that Gentiles would come from far and wide and experience the joy of his kingdom of heaven. But the natural sons of the kingdom, Abraham's physical descendants, would be cast out. They would find themselves thrown into the outer darkness because of the rejection of the Messiah. That place where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see in here, the roles of the people being reversed. Those who should have been sons were now rejected. And those who were enemies were now embraced. Matthew 21, 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, you have, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In a direct reversal reversal of how it may have been expected to be fulfilled, the roles of servants and enemies has been switched. Isaiah 65, 13 and 14, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. These words of Jesus would surely have come as a shock to those who heard him speak. Jesus' earthly ministry was centered on the nation of Israel, yet he knew that only a remnant would be saved. The nation would be judged, and they would be thrown into outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is common gospel language to describe the horrific reality of being under the judgment of God. There will be weeping as there is realization of the great loss of the opportunity to see the kindness and this be in the sweet presence of God. And there will be gnashing of teeth as the damned rage in fury that they would ever face the consequence of their actions. So in eternity, they experience a hell of one's own emotions to go along with the hell of the fullness of God's wrath being poured out without end. Well, as we close this morning, I want you to consider the great affirmation of Christ's nature that is found in his possession of the authority of God. 
Jesus did not and does not pretend to have authority. He did not usurp authority. He did not take anything upon himself that did not rightly belong to him. Jesus has all authority, all the authority of God over all of creation because he is God. Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion because of his recognition of the scope and the source of Jesus' authority. That same claim that was such a powerful Christological claim of his deity. So beloved, consider how you have responded to the authority of Christ. Do you see and believe that he is from God? Or do you see and hear and take offense that he might make demands of you? Will Christ marvel over your faith or over your unbelief? You have heard, you have seen much, you have experienced much among the people of God and the wonder of the gospel. The difference in your response is the difference between reclining at the table with Abraham or being thrown out into the outer darkness. So beloved, see the wonder of Christ and believe. Take no offense because of him. Trust in him. Believe on him. Rest in the light of Christ at the feasting table. You will not be disappointed. You will not be put to shame. Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for this account of of this man who had no earthly business going to Christ, yet saw his authority, knew where it would have stemmed from, that it had to be of God, and believed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Give us such faith to see Christ and to believe. Forbid that we would take any offense of him, was to believe, to obey. The glory of your name. For these things in Jesus' name. Amen.